This is week 11 of our... Listen, it's called verse-by-verse verse exposition, okay? That's the technical term, okay? Verse-by-verse verse exposition. This is week 11 of our verse-by-verse verse exposition of the letter of Jude. And we come finally to these concluding verses, 24 and 25. Most likely, your Bible, like mine, has a little heading over those verses. It reads simply, doxology. And so it is that we come to the, these concluding words, not a benediction, but a doxology. So let's read together, and we'll pray and dive in. Now to him, verse 24, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And so, Father, as we stand uh, humbly holding your, your word in our hands, the this English rendering of this compiled library of your inspired scriptures. Um, we hold them and we stand to honor the reading of them because, you know, you told us that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will remain. Not only that, but it is the word that cuts deep into our hearts, according to the writer of Hebrews. It discerns. You see, we can lie to ourselves and we can lie to others, but we cannot lie to you and your word discerns through uh, our deceptions and misconceptions. It is the, the word we read in John 1 that became flesh incarnate, and dwelt among us. It seems that your word was, and now is revealed, and will be for all time. And so, Father, it is to this, um, this book that we devote not only our attention, uh, but we stand in honor we cherish, we, we relish the opportunity. We enjoy and take great joy in carefully considering each word uh, like a delicious piece of cake, you know, carefully enjoying each morsel. And so help us this morning to do just that. As we unpack and sift through these few closing words from your servant Jude. Right. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts that are willing uh, to obey. Or convict us of our misconceptions. Bring to alignment that which is out of place and out of order. We ask these things because you are a merciful and good God. Not because we deserve it, nor have we done what is required to be worthy of it. But Lord, because you are good and you are kind, 
We ask these things of you. Our Lord and our Savior, in Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, Jude now, having warned us, his readers, right, having warned the readers of the darkness that is among us in the verses 3 through 16, having warned us that the tactics of those who have crept into the church are deceptive and destructive, having described thoroughly in detail the character of those who we should be on the lookout for, Jude shows us here in conclusion, listen, what is to be our preoccupation? The wonder of God's loving kindness toward his creation. You see, this is important because as much as we have spent the best part of the, the last three months talking weekly about false teachers, about snakes in the grasses, if you will, of the church, you know, wheeling, like sneaking their way in, hiding underneath old lawnmowers. My dad told me a story of being up in West Virginia on a piece of property where we've hunted since I was a little kid. And, uh, and there was some tall grasses and there was like a, a lawnmower and as they were standing there talking, a snake went right between my dad's legs through the grasses. And, they, and, and my dad, because he's a man, uh, has a pistol on his hip, okay? And uh, because men carry guns, use guns, shoot guns, have guns. Uh, Tim Allen, oh, you know, anyway, all right. Uh, uh, he, he goes chasing this snake through the grasses and it hides underneath the, this old piece of equipment and so him and his brother like tag team you know okay you lift I shoot you know it was a full-on you know they're hunting down this snake but what was the key the key was my dad never saw it why because the grasses were tall and he came slithering in and before he was even aware that there was a snake it was at his feet could have struck him could have pounced their false teachers who have crept into the church like that. They slither in. They attend the seminaries. They receive the denominational funds to plant the church. And then they build a church, in many cases, building an empire unto themselves, acquiring influence and notoriety. And then they take that massive amount of people that are often in their wake and they, and they march them right off the cliff of doctrinal integrity, orthodox Christianity. They sneak in. They don't come overtly. They creep. And so Jude has warned us of this. And having done so and having us taken the time to thoroughly, carefully consider this, both in the modern church in the medieval church and in the early church, as early as the first and second century. Having done all of that, Jude says, our preoccupation is to be the goodness and the glory of God. The false teachers are not our focus. 
No, we are not to be professional rebukers, but rather to him who is worthy of all praise and attention, preoccupation and adoration. Let your thoughts and extolling expressions be offered to God liberally and without reservation. Having done all of this, he says, this, here's where we stand. Or you might say, here's where we sit and meditate. Jesus did not say, rebuke the false teachers and all these things will be added to you. He was, he was imploring his followers to, to set their minds on the things that are above. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added. Of course, a thorough examination of false teachers is necessary. It's all over the New Testament, warnings about it, how to handle them, how to respond. And we've done that. But we're not supposed to be necessarily identified by it. We're identified by our worshipful preoccupation with the goodness of God. And so it is in this concluding portion, Jude teaches us to fix our eyes on Jesus as the culminating response to the threat of wolves having crept in to the sheepfold. So, remembering from an earlier study in Romans that the phrase doxology is a word of praise, Jude compels us to worship with him, right? You might as well say, Jude's writing a little worship song here at the end of his letter, and he's inviting us to come and worship with him, offering, in my estimation, four causes of worship. And so you saw a moment ago the title, Four Causes of Worship. And so if you're taking notes, the first of four causes, believe it or not, I have four points today, all right? I'm not married to three points. It's just usually the best way. But today there's four, because I see in my best estimation, four causes that Jude gives to us. Reasons to compel us to respond to him in worship. And the first is found there in that opening phrase, he keeps you from stumbling. Now, to him who is able, what? To keep you from falling on your face. <laughs> Isn't this great? Worship the Lord. Why? Because he's the creator of the universe? No, that's true, but no. Because of the cross of our salvation? Well, that's true, but not yet. Why? Come worship with me. Why? Because he keeps you from falling on your face and embarrassing yourself. <laughs> it's great. It's very human. Yeah. What's he talking about? The God who keeps you from stumbling. Well, James tells us we all stumble in many ways. And so when you take scripture out of context, and when you, if you're not careful, you'll say, James says we all stumble in many ways. But Jude says God keeps you from stumbling. And the skeptic says, see, the scriptures are in contradiction with one another. These are things that we must hold in tension we all stumble in many ways, but Jude 1, we are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus. Kept for Jesus, and kept by Jesus. And so there's something else obviously going on here. 
The stumbling James obviously speaks of is not the stumbling from the faith, stumbling, if you will, out of orthodoxy, stumbling off the narrow path and on to the wide path to destruction. That's not the stumbling that James seems to speak of when he says we all stumble in many ways, but rather the stumbling of which Paul speaks in Romans 7.15, probably the most relatable verses in all of the Bible, for I do not understand my own actions. Now, every teenage boy should go, right? Yep, I do not understand my own actions. Moms and dads go, I do not understand your actions. <laughs> no, very relatable. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. This is the stumbling that James speaks of. We all stumble. We struggle. The struggle with our unredeemed flesh is part of the Christian experience. If you're not struggling, you're probably not redeemed. You're just giving in. There's no war with your flesh. There's no war with sin. There's no conviction of sin. It's because you're not redeemed. You think you are. You think because you said some magic words 20 years ago. You think because you sit in a pew occasionally on Sundays that you're redeemed. You're fooling yourself if there's no conviction, if there's no struggle. There's no redemption. There's no hope for you in eternity. Wake up, friend. Westminster Confession, though, tells us about this struggle. When, the, when God convicts a sinner and brings him into a state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage to sin. That's good, right? Praise the Lord. And by his grace alone, meaning not because you did something good, not because you mustered up the strength to pray a prayer, no, by his grace alone, he enables him freely to will and to do what is spiritually good. That's why you in Christ are actually able to do something good. That is spiritual fruit. The fruit that Jesus said he wills his followers to produce that will remain for all of eternity. He enables that when you come to him by faith, by his grace alone, he enables that. Yet, or it might say like, in spite of this, because of his that's yours and mine, remaining corruption. He, you and I, does not perfectly only will what is good, but also wills what is evil. So that in Christ, although sin no longer reigns, it remains. Now, this is so helpful, isn't it? The clarity and the precision of these statements of our faith that go back hundreds of years... Our lack of familiarity with them is to our own detriment. But is this not helpful? Because of his remaining corruption, that's what John MacArthur calls your unredeemed flesh. Right? You have the, the redemption of your heart and soul. You are new from the inside out. Jesus said you have to be reborn of the Spirit. But if you will, you're still you're sort of wrapped, cloaked in this fleshly body that was born into sin. That is, that is your remaining corruption or your unredeemed flesh. And because of that, you, you do will to do what is good, but you also will to do what is 
evil, you will then therefore be in conflict, look, with yourself. We all stumble in many ways, but we are kept for Jesus. And so we don't stumble out of the faith. We simply stumble as we wrestle with the sin and that remains. And so we have a particular confidence. He keeps you from stumbling fully, right? All the way. He keeps you by conviction, right? He keeps you with a a well-timed sermon that cuts to the heart. He keeps you with a brother or a sister who says, is that really good? When I was about, um, I guess I was like 20, so stupid. Um, I had a, had a favorite brown t-shirt, uh, brown with uh, light blue letters. It was very, you know, uh, 1970s vibe, right? Uh, where brown was everywhere, right? Why, why? Why, guys? You who were alive and deciding these things, what was the fascination with brown? Anyway, uh, it had the letters across the front, I have candy. Right, and that's what I did when I saw the shirt. I thought, that's funny. That's odd. That's random. That's out of left field. You know, that's a silly, funny phrase on a shirt. And so I'm cruising around the Christian bookstore on my, uh, on my uh, church campus, uh, wearing my I Have Candy brown t-shirt that I got for $10, and it fits. It fits good, and for a skinny guy to make a shirt fit good where you don't look so scrawny, you know, you're always happy with that. And I had an older gentleman come up to me, and he says, um, he says, can I talk to you for a sec? Hey, do you understand the connotation of the words on your t-shirt? I said, no, I thought it was just kind of funny and, and random just completely off the wall. He says, no, that, I believe it's a connotation to grown men trying to lure children to, to abduct them and to harm them, saying, I have candy, come get in my van. And uh, I said, I, I didn't know that. I certainly didn't think about that. I'm 20, my frontal lobe hasn't fully developed. <laughs> he said, well, you know what? I would encourage you to do, I go to the bathroom and turn it inside out, go home and throw it away. And I didn't like that advice. I appreciated the kindness of this old man to confront me in a nice way, but I didn't like his advice. I liked my $10 t-shirt. $10 was a lot to me. I lived in Southern California. I was 20 years old. I was working two jobs to try to pay rent, and I didn't want to get rid of my favorite t-shirt. But but because of, probably because of the, the manner the wisdom, you know, the manner with which he approached me. And because, um, because the Spirit is in me, you see. A, a well-timed word from a brother in Christ was enough to convict me to do the right thing. Now, of course, that's a silly and small thing, but that's the point. A well-timed word comes along at the right time and in the right moment, and he convicts us to keep us from stumbling. Stumbling all the way into rebellion and rejection. And we have this confidence that he keeps us from stumbling in this way, but that confidence is based on God's providence. 
on his providence. We might say his sovereign oversight of the whole workings of the whole world. From the song we introduced this morning, O Church Arise, we read and we sang, and with the sword that makes the wounded whole, that is the word of God, by the way, the sword of the Spirit, the sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus, the sword that makes the wounded whole. You're wounded with sin, by the way. You're wounded from your birth in your sin nature, and it's the sword that makes you whole. It's not just one sermon or one spurt of devotion. It is continual and regular cutting and cutting, but the cutting is a healing. There's a great scene in Narnia where, uh, where Eustace, this absolutely petulant, annoying little boy, he, uh, he uh, has become, he is transformed into a dragon with scales. And he wishes so badly to be free of this, you know, this, this transformation. And he meets Aslan, who is the God figure in the Narnia world. He represents God. And as he meets Aslan and as he, as he approaches him and he experiences the grace and the kindness and the forgiveness and the rejuvenation that God offers to the one who is, who is repentant, Aslan begins with his claws to shred into his skin. And the, Lewis tells the story from the perspective of Eustace saying, oh, it burned, it hurt, and he kept tearing and tearing, and I thought he was going to kill me. I thought I was going to die under the weight of the pain and the struggle, but right when he thought he couldn't take any more, he looked in this reflecting pool, and he could see that Aslan had shredded all of that, that grotesque dragon off of him. That's the sword that makes the wounded whole. It cuts, friend. It convicts. But it makes you whole. It's a different sermon. Let's get back to this one. With the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we sang this a few moments ago, we know the outcome is secure and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Those are some bold statements. And we can sing those words with confidence. Why? Because he keeps you from stumbling out of his hand, as Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me, they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever what? Come on. Snatch them out of my hand. This is a great promise. But what assurance should we have that God keeps us, that no one can snatch us from his hand, if we are not confident that God is in complete control. The great promises of our faith are undermined by a weak confidence in divine providence. In the Puritan classic, The Mystery of Providence, I have it right here on my bookshelf, John Flavel, he writes, it is the duty of the saints especially in times of straits, or that is struggle, right? Trial. To reflect upon the performances of providence for them in all the states 
and through all the stages of their lives. It is the duty of the Christian to reflect on the providence of God. Flavel, in other words, urges Christians to meditate on God's providential oversight at every juncture of life and even to talk about it with other Christians. In essence, we might conclude Judah's compelling us to worship in response to God's wise, perfect, just, complete, and ultimately good, sovereign oversight of everything. No matter the day, no matter the hour, the trouble or the burden, no matter the worry or the fear. Right? When faced with trials on every side. Right? He keeps you, Christian. He keeps us. He is watching over your son or your daughter. He is not unaware of your burden. Right? No matter the political upheaval, the economic downturn, the uncertainty of the future, he is in control. He keeps us. And friends... When the, when the lavish 21st century economy of America collapses we, and our 401ks are worthless and the dollar is worthless, the trial, the worry, the fear, the anxiety, what is stable when everything else is unpredictable? He keeps us. But we have no confidence that he keeps us if we are not first confident that he sovereignly oversees everything. He is not caught off guard. He is not out of control. Everything is happening as it should. You are right where you should be. You can hold on to that. And church, we must. For, I would argue, we will have nothing else to cling to. And so, to him then, we offer hymns of adoration, to God be the glory. Second reason or cause for worship, he presents you faultless. He keeps you, and then as he keeps you, he presents you. That's what we read in Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. This is great, friends. He presents you faultless. Here is my sinful, rebellious, disobedient human blanketed in the righteous perfection of Jesus, presented to the judge who can discern through any phony baloney lies that we might attempt to pretend to be. He presents you, not as you are, but as he is, faultless. Hey, this is great. This is our only hope in life and in death, the New City Catechism question number one. What is our only hope in life and in death? Our only hope in life and in death is that we are not our own, but we belong both body and soul in life and in death to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. I like the way the Heidelberg Catechism continues that It says, he has fully paid for all my sins. This is the full answer to the same question. 
with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Sorry, men, you know. Mm, um, That's his will, (laughs) that you're bold. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him, end quote. For what it's worth, children for generations memorized that entire answer among hundreds of others to that very question. Our only hope in life and in death is that he presents us faultless before the throne of God because this is what is required by God. Faultless, blameless, without spot or blemish. I want to read to you from Leviticus chapter 21. You can turn with me if you'd like or you can just sit tight. Listen to this regulation for those who are to serve in God's presence. If you're going to be in my presence, which is what the kingdom of heaven eventually is, we are serving in God's presence. Look at verse uh, 18 if you've turned there with me. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a blind man or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured head or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles, sorry, no man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. That's pretty brutal, isn't it? You're born blind, not allowed to serve in the, tab- in the tabernacle. You have an accident and have your foot crushed, not allowed to serve in the tabernacle anymore. You get a disease from someone or from something, not allowed to serve in the tabernacle anymore. And we read that with our 21st century sensibilities and we say, well, that's not very loving or accepting. It's not very nice. It's kind of cruel. Well, that's the point. God does not will not accept anyone who has a blemish into his kingdom. Not a physical blemish like what's described in Leviticus, but rather a spiritual one. This regulation in Leviticus was not about being cruel to those individuals who had an accident or who were born with a defect apart from their own control or choices. It's not about cruelty to them, but rather about the foreshadowing picture of what is required to be in God's holy presence. Perfection. Absolute, pure, and spotless perfection. Yes, on the part of the Lamb, but also on the part of those who would serve in His kingdom, the humans too. So here's the question. Can you accomplish that? Can you accomplish absolute, pure, and spotless perfection? In all of your endeavors, in your best effort, living a quiet and peaceable life, can you muster selfless, perfect, faithful, pure devotion to God from your birth until your death without even a fleeting moment of sinful doubt, sinful lust, anger, or worldly preoccupation? Now, if we're honest with ourselves, 
1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we lie to ourselves. If we're honest, we will be ready to admit, no, I cannot. I have days that are better than others, but I can't do that. Well, then we have violated his law and are banished, excluded from his presence, like the Levite who's born blind or who has an accident and breaks his foot. Banished. He requires perfection. This is a pretty hopeless state, no? There's a scene in a Star Wars spinoff called The Mandalorian where the lead character, Din Djarin, he admits to violating the code of the Mandalorian religion. And the high priestess says to him in in one very dramatic scene, then you are Mandalorian no more. Anybody else seen The Mandalorian? It's good. A lot of religious overtones. There's a lot that actually can be deciphered if you're looking at it through a very careful Christian lens. Well, that lead character, again, Din Djarin, he asks the only logical question in response. He says, quote, how can I atone? <laughs> End quote. How can I atone? The word is repay, make amends. How can I make amends? How can I repay? What is required to appease the violation, or is this state permanent? The glory of the Christian faith and message is that you cannot atone. You cannot repay. You first have violated God's law and are banished from his presence. And unlike Din Djarin, who can travel to the the depths of Mandalore and wash himself in the ceremonial waters, you cannot travel, you cannot wash, you cannot repay, you cannot atone. So you can't be perfect, and you can't fix it. What a great message. Praise the Lord, right? Someone else has to do it for you who is without sin, without blemish, without fault. And the glory of the message is that someone else did the only one who could, the one whose way, Psalm 24, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, the one whose way is blameless. Who can come into the throne room of God, the one whose way is without fault? He did. In fact, there's this great little, I'm doing all these little caveats that I promised myself I wouldn't do this morning for the sake of time. There's this fascinating um, conversation between Jesus and, and I believe it was Mary Magdalena. It was, it was the woman who, who first spoke with Jesus. He said, go tell the brothers, right? But he, what did he say? He said, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended. Don't touch me. She reached out to hug him. No, 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 don't touch me. I have not yet ascended. But then we read, essentially in the next chapter, Jesus appears in the middle of a locked room, right? Shalom. And what does he say? Touch me. And what's going on? Is the girl, does she have cooties? Or what's going on there? Why would he say, put your hand in my side, but to the woman say, don't touch me, I've not yet ascended. The best understanding is this. 
in between the conversation with Mary and the conversation with the disciples, Jesus did ascend to the throne room of heaven. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? The one whose way is blameless. And he sprinkled his blood at the altar of the throne room of heaven. The work was completed. And then he returned. And he said, okay, it's done. Your sin won't defile my resurrected self. Touch me. The work is done. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? The one whose way is blameless. And when he sprinkled his blood at the altar in the throne room of heaven, he did so for you. Not merely to temporarily cover your sin, as was the regulation of the old covenant, but to permanently cleanse you from your sin. This is the faith and message of Christianity. You can't, but he did. And when he did, something truly miraculous happened. He presents you. You don't present yourself. You violated his law. You cannot atone. But he can, he did, and then now, if you will, he gathers you in his arms and he presents you to the Father. Now, I wonder, Christian, if you can articulate this truth. Can you? Can you with precision articulate the truth of the state of your fallen neighbor, coworker, family member? Can you articulate this to them? How they are unquestionably guilty before the throne room of God about how they cannot atone. They cannot wash themselves. They cannot, um, uh, as, the, as the, the, the Catholic faith perpetuates, they, they, they cannot say enough prayers or do enough floggings. You cannot. Only the one whose way is blameless, but the one whose way is blameless did for you. And by grace through faith, he will present you to the Father, clothed in his blamelessness. Friend, can you articulate that? With precision. With more than gusto, but with precision. That's the question. Do you know it so well you can recite it to yourself with clarity? Can you preach the gospel to yourself in your moments of doubt and fear and worry? Can you present this great exchange of your sin for his righteousness to your children with accuracy to your coworker and to your neighbor? I've found that there are three types of people in the world. There's the passionate, the educated, and the composite. Passionate, educated, and composite. Here's what I mean. The passionate believe what they believe with intensity. Even if what they believe is lazy, passive, pointlessness, they believe it enough to torpedo their lives to indulge it. Passionate people believe what they believe with intensity. Educated people believe what they believe because they are well-read, thoroughly read. They've done the research, like Tom Cruise told What's the guy's name? Brian something on NBC. I've done the research. Don't be glib. You know that, that, you know that famous interview? One of my favorite actors. 
presented himself like an absolute knucklehead in that moment. I've done the research. Now, maybe their sources are garbage, but they've at least educated themselves. And so they present a sound, reasoned, thorough, cited argument. And then you have the composite, which is essentially the passionate and educated. So they're fervent about what they believe, and they're educated in it. Even if they're wrong, they're still fervent and educated. Passionate, educated, composite. Now, if you've ever encountered someone who is passionate but not educated, you probably think like I do. Maybe you're right, but it's a bit much to take, (laughs) right? Furthermore, I'm not convinced by all of your shouting, you know? You seem awfully passionate about what you believe, and I commend you, but you're kind of a lunatic, right? So I'm not so sure that I'm going to put much stock in what you have to say. You've not presented a careful, articulate argument, right? I'm more likely to listen to the person who has a reasoned, articulate presentation than I am to be convinced by the person who is just excited and animated. Now, back to the question. Do you have in your tool chest, in your tool pouch, a carefully reasoned, articulate, and precise presentation of the gospel? Can you, do you, Because, friend, I'm sorry, but your feelings and your story are not the gospel. As true as they may be, they are not the gospel. Warm, fuzzy feelings are described by lots of cults and heretics. What we need is a carefully reasoned argument. It can be offered with intensity but one is more likely to be dismissed than the other. And so I would encourage you, friends, go on a date with your husband or wife, take 10 minutes, and present this truth to each other. And you might feel weird, like this is kind of silly. Our pastor said we should rehearse this. Come on, right? That's my, <laughs> that's my argument. Come on. <laughs> no, but I mean, right? Like, what are we talking about? Talking about 10 minutes. You can wax poetic about the juiciness of the steak, but you can't take 10 minutes to rehearse the gospel? Come on. Have your children write it out. Think it through. But require of yourself the kind of careful precision that takes into account the stakes, eternal life or eternal damnation. He presents you faultless before the throne. You are full of fault, yet he presents you faultless. How? Why? How is this accomplished? Why was it necessary? If you can't answer these questions, friend, forgive me. I, 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 do, not, I do not understand how we can call ourselves Christians. And so I implore you here alongside Jude, Friends, we worship him, not because it's fun or it feels good or the music is so excellent. There were several wrong notes, right? 
We don't worship him just be, to get whipped up into an emotional frenzy because it's exciting and, whoo, man, that drum beat. There's no drums, so what are we going to do, right? We have reason to worship. He keeps you in his hand. He has taken all of your sin on his shoulders at the cross and he has clothed you like a bride adorned in a beautiful wedding gown and he has taken you, he will take you and he will present you to the judge, the God of all creation and say, this one is mine, blanketed in my righteousness. We have reason to sing. We have reason to worship. We have reason to be glad. Praise be to the Lord who keeps us and presents us faultless before the throne. Well, we'll consider the second of the f- second two of four causes for worship next Sunday. Let's pause there and pray. Gracious Father, we we do thank you that we do not sing benign lyrics over and over again, repetitively as if we have no mind. We do not simply hum along to a nice tune. We worship you in song and in devotion and in prayer. How because you keep us. Because you have taken our sinful shame You've taken it from us in Christ. You've given to us your righteous perfection. And then you've promised that regardless of our struggle, you hold on to us. You keep us. So that one day, so that one day we will be presented before the throne of grace, holy and pure, righteous and radiant. Lord, may we sing and worship in response to your grace. In Christ's name, amen.